The following program is brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers. Welcome to Restoration Radio. I'm sorry we don't have time to hear that full Kyrie. It's from the Coronation Mass uh, written by Mozart. Uh, and that is the intro to our show today on Christ the King. Uh, we are joined uh, today by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. Um, I am your sole host today, um, Stephen Heiner, from True Restoration and True Restoration Press. And um, if there's quite a lot to talk about today, Your Excellency. We've got the election coming up. Um, the Feast of Christ the King is tomorrow. Uh, you've got a lot of work to do for that. And um, there's, there's also a lot of resonance uh, here with our last show that we did with you, which was on the Sacred Heart, which was extremely popular. And um, that might be a good place for us to start. Sure. Th- uh, thanks for your invitation. I have to say, at first I wondered, hmm, now why am I being given Christ the King? Uh, then, as I got thinking about it, Stephen, I thought, well, it's a perfect and a logical follow-up. Uh, the Feast of Christ the King, the devotion, the doctrine, follows perfectly and develops that of the devotion to the Sacred Heart of our Lord. We're going from a personal piety the devotion, the statue, the picture, the holy cards, private prayers, uh, the promises that are given to an individual soul for uh, for salvation. We're going from that to something which is uh, public. And we need to talk today about the extension of the Sacred Heart devotion with the great work, especially of Father Matteo, the work of the home enthronement of the Sacred Heart, which we spoke of last time. But also, of course, we need to speak about the popes and the Pope's uh, doctrine, and the Pope's doctrine enfleshed, if you will, in tomorrow's feast day, the feast day of uh, Christ the King. This feast day links together the Blessed Sacrament, the Sacred Heart, and the Kingship of Christ. This feast day connects as well private revelation. Private revelation was very important to the Pope's. An interesting note, I think, Public revelation, the sacred scripture, links as well, the sacred liturgy, the theme of the kingship of Christ is found in the scriptural and very uh, very beautifully poetic terms in the liturgy of the church throughout uh, the year, and also the magisterium, especially the social doctrine of the church. Now, you might say that the feast of Christ the King takes the sacred heart out of the cloister, out of the cloister chapel, into the parish church. And it takes the sacred heart into the classroom. It's not content to stop there. It also takes the sacred heart of Jesus into the courtroom and, should he be allowed, into Congress. 
And finally, today, by means of the wonder of a program like this, it takes our Lord the King into the computer and to the Internet just about everywhere. We mustn't forget the home, though, because the home is where it all starts. And it takes the, this feast, takes the Sacred Heart of Jesus from the back bedroom. This would be a Father Mateo theme, a private devotional picture where nobody's going to see, see it. From the back bedroom into the living room or the family room or the kitchen. It establishes our Lord's rights in public in the life of the family to start with. So you might say that it takes the Sacred Heart from the heart. The heart's very important. Jared Manley Hopkins says that the heart is where man is most man. You feel, you feel the things that, that, you, that you are there in, in your heart. But that's not enough. That's the doctrine of, the, of this feast day. It's got to go from the heart to the head and to the hands. Uh, this king of ours breaks with a rod of iron, the Virga Feria. He breaks the backs of his foes. All of the kings of the earth, we see this at Epiphany, have to bend low, literally lick the dust before his throne. And the feast day like this reminds us of these great truths of revelation. Um, I think, Stephen, that having this topic for a radio show, especially, as you mentioned, this time of year, is uh, an excellent idea. Just as having the feast day itself at this time of the year was an excellent idea, a true inspiration of uh, the Pope, Pius XI. But, of course, this isn't enough. It's not enough to talk about it for a little bit and to, to hear Mass tomorrow and maybe listen to a sermon about the kingship of Christ. In his esto, as St. Paul says, be in these things. For us today to survive in the world of what the French call laicisme or naturalism and liberalism, for us to survive, it is very important that we should be immersed in the spirit of Catholicism, the sacred scripture, the sacred liturgy, and the social doctrine of the church. These things should occupy us. Uh, they need to occupy us a whole lot more than, than partisan politics do, because all of that is simply the playing out of naturalism in one way or another. Um, when we let that sure, happen... And, and, hmm? and you know, Your Excellency, for Americans, I think that, that tends to get the immediacy, the gratification, you know, we want that if uh, uh, we get to engage right away uh, as opposed to, oh, well, the kingship of Christ is kind of a long-term strategy. You know, it's almost like the eschaton. It'll, it'll, it'll be there, but, but right. not yet. Um, it'll be there, but not yet. And so take your time and be patient about it. No great rush. And in the meantime, if you want to inch forward and accomplish some goods, hic et nunc in the here and now, you've got to enter into this system of mammon. But Christ the King is here to tell us tomorrow ain't necessarily so. That's not true. That's not true at all. And indeed, it's my contention today that the experience of the church in the 20th century more than amply indicates that when we try to enter into this system and try to work and function in it, we are doomed not only to failure, but to some kind of a terrible disaster. 
You know, uh, the Catholics would accept the most Catholics, I suppose, would accept the naturalistic or the liberal premise of a free church and a free state. And you would think, boy, to be free, that what what more could we possibly ask for? That's not true. That's not true at all. We can ask for, we can work for, we have to insist on a whole lot more than that. And I think, Steve, that you can you can say that the church uh, in America is a very good illustration of that. I think in some sense the church thrived in America, but at the same time her hierarchy paid the price. They thwarted, bishops have always thwarted, the idea of the kingship of Christ. And what's the supreme American virtue? Go along to get along. Toleration. Toleration, right, yeah. Now, I'm all for toleration. <laughs> You're not going to burn somebody at the stake or something like that, <laughs> at least not right away. But uh, And amongst ourselves as Catholics, it would be lovely to see a little bit more toleration, to tell you the truth. But um, whoever heard anything growing up, and I'm talking about before the changes, whoever heard anything about the French Revolution, whoever heard anything about, about Freemasonry, about George Washington, the layout of the of the of the Capitol, and and the uh, the whole work of naturalism and of modernism in uh, modern times. Whoever heard anything about the actual rights of the Catholic Church? Whoever heard anything about our glorious American Catholic history? Uh, I think it's I think it's the work of this feast by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost and the, the magisterial decision of one vicar of Christ, Pius XI. It's the work of this feast to insert this spirituality into, uh, into our viewpoint, our, our world understanding. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's uh, the, the distinctly liturgical sensibility of Pius the eleventh, as he says in Quas Primas, in order to get these doctrines across, you know, I'm writing an encyclical. How many people read encyclicals? <laughs> very, unfortunately, very few. I don't think seminarians frequently don't even study encyclicals, or, or else you might just get like a little snippet here and there. I know a few lay people who have immersed themselves in encyclicals, but. Uh, that's it. That's about it. But the, the Pope realized that that would be the case. No one's going to read, even though to read the encyclical of a true Pope like Pius XI is to enter into a world of refreshingly clear, and because it's Catholic and Orthodox and true, it's simple and easy to understand. It's that kind of thinking. It really does communicate itself very well. But the, the Pope realized and, and that for modern man, Quas Primas is only 23 pages. Right, so I mean, it's not, it's not so even, bad. It's not even that long. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, it's not even that long. No, and once you start reading it, because it all makes sense, and it's uh, it, it's sublime, but yet at the same time is readily understandable. Well, you 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 start to get the doctrine. However, most of the people who fill the pews tomorrow in church are never going to pick up a papal encyclical, uh, nor would there be time necessarily to read it from the altar in the place of a sermon. You lose everybody. So the Pope realized that. So what did he do? He instituted a feast day, a feast day in the autumn of the year towards the end of the liturgical year in order to bring before the people in, in, in the Holy Mass, in the Divine Office, the Sacred Liturgy, all of these great truths, not in a classroom setting because it's not the 
purposes, Father Chicago would say, of the liturgy to be didactic. But in but in the setting of uh, well, I mean, what's what's the church? What's the sanctuary? The liturgical modernists laughed at the idea of uh, the mass, solemn mass, pontifical mass. It's a kind of a court ritual. But you know that's exactly what it is. It is the it is the house of the king, the basilica. Our Lord is is the King of Kings. And our worship of him, whether it be a very simple low mass or whether it be a gorgeous pontifical high mass, our worship of him is the actual carrying out of all of these principles of the kingship of Christ to which we adhere because we're Catholics. So we follow the encyclicals of the popes. Um, one, one can, story. I, can I, can I, can I get... Can I uh, wanted to tie back to you had you made a brief mention of it um, in your sort of opening monologue talking about this time of year. Um, I just want to before we move on talk about not only it's uh, it's apropos of the end of the liturgical year, but also in relation to historical events and. Uh, of course, we always relate to Vatican II and the changes how that had to be changed after Vatican II because we couldn't have that kind of association. Could you comment a bit on, about that? Yes, but I was just going to tell a story. I had a, a great uncle who was a Holy Cross father and retired at, at Notre Dame. And we used to correspond when I was a minor seminarian in the 60s. And I remember he told me one feast day of Christ the King, a funny story, how the, uh, this would be the John the Twenty Third liturgy, which was still kept for a few years under Paul the Sixth. And um, as it turned out, because of the, the, the playing out of the rules, the divine office was just about the same as it was when it was first instituted. Many other offices have been radically shortened, say, in the John the Twenty Third changes, but not this one. I remember my uncle telling me the, the conversation of the priests at table, how they were all annoyed at having to spend so long saying the divine office, reading those excerpts from Quas Primas in, in the office of Matins, for example. And I thought to myself, now I think boy, that really does show the spirit of the, the rot inside uh, the Catholic Church and really, you have to say, the bad spirit of, of many priests. Yet, so say, first of all, you know, if, if, it's, if a feast day is going to bring across the point to the laity, it has to remind the priest, too, that he is our king. And in the tribute that we render to him in the recitation of the office, uh, the mass, the the courtroom ceremonial, the vestments, uh, the decorations, the music, sermon, everything has to render him uh, great homage. But going back to the idea of this time of year, of course, for us it's perfect because it's um it's an election year, and this is a, a well needed and merciful sort of dose of sanity. If only we would line up for the injection, uh, it would help us to keep our head about things. Um, the great home apostle and society apostle of the Sacred Heart is, of course, Father Matteo. In some place, he tells the story of, um, he was on very close terms with the 20th century popes, he tells the story of sitting down and discussing the feast day to come with Pius XI, and the pope asked him when he thought it should be. And as he tells the tale, uh, the two of them agreed that they would do it in the fall of the year, even because nature itself, as it were, turns out in the royal colors of the yellow and the gold with the changing of the trees, symbolizing, as it were, externally and in a natural sense, 
poetically, the, the, the reality that our Lord is king of this world. He reigns here. And, of course, that was one of the perhaps most beautiful, uh, poignant, and to-the-point uh, principles of uh, Archbishop Lefebvre in his own, his own resistance to Vatican II and to the new church, the, the kingship of Christ, the Novus Ordo puts the Feast of Christ the King at the end of their liturgical year in November and puts Christ the King, as you mentioned earlier about the coming of, of kingdom come, in effect, way, way, way off in some indefinite future at the end of the world, or as Ratzinger would say, when we evolve into this Teardian light, then somehow that's going to be the kingship of Christ. Where's the right, the omega point or something. The omega point, right, yeah. The archbishop insisted, and rightly so, that he's king, nunc, here and now, and that everything, uh, not only the liturgy, but, but government and politics and art and education, everything has to wear, as it were, the royal colors, the colors of, of the king of kings, as nature does at this time of year. Hmm. Well, while we're here on while we're here talking about the election a little bit, you're actually seeing. I know we we have we definitely have listeners from outside the United States, but I I, I was uh I was looking even the UK Parliament YouTube channel had uh, a five minute video on elections in the United States and and how they work. So even yeah. you know as as much as we realize it's a it's a local it's a national election it seems that the US presidential election is an international event and so it might yeah. be helpful yeah, to comment to comment on that even a bit for our international listeners to talk about you know what is what it you know i've always heard russell kirk say that politics is the art of the possible uh, and of course as a catholic we have to marry possibilities to faith and to prayer and you know, a lot, you will hear people talk, and you talked a, a little bit about it at the beginning, talk about getting involved in partisan politics. You know, mm -hmm. I'll get harangued by, you know, Catholics about how I need to vote for Mitt Romney and how that's that's the only vote, you know, a Catholic can vote for, or, or that I might be actually be committing a mortal sin if I don't vote for Mitt Romney. Um, how does the idea of the kingship of Christ tie into voting responsibilities, I would say, in general, and then let's say specifically for this election? Can you comment a bit on that? Well, yes, I mean, I've known some who I remember from the last election, some traditional Catholics who very sincerely held and taught, uh, quoting snippets of certain moral theologians, that it was an obligation that bound uh, sub gravi, um, pain of mortal sin, to participate in the uh, election process. But if you go back and you read the moral theologians, you see that, of course, there's going to be a zillion distinctions that they make, and they're speaking really of a different world and uh, of, a, of a different place. I, uh, and then, of course, when you're talking about these things, too, you're talking, Stephen, about personal opinion, um, but, uh, and, and no longer the magisterial doctrine of the church. But I've been thinking the last few days as I was preparing for the radio show about um, how the kingship of Christ played out in church history. And I believe that this gives us the answer to uh, your question. Um, you had two kinds of popes throughout history. Uh, how did the popes deal with the secular or the temporal power? Uh, you had those who took their tiara very seriously. They looked at things from the supernatural viewpoint. They were courageous men. 
about one of the beautiful texts in the Mass tomorrow, uh, the Alleluia verse, I believe, Dominabitur amare usquiat mare, from the Psalms, he shall rule from sea to sea. They say that as a boy, Gregory VII spelled that out with his playing blocks once on the, on the floor, and that was mm. taken by all to be uh, sort of a prophecy of this great Hildebrand, how he would come and he would rest- he would bravely, courageously restore the order in church and thus in society. Then you have a Pius V, that, you know, that little austere Dominican who turned took the took the took the world by the ear, as it were, and turned it upside down to restore the order of the kingship of Christ. But those were the exceptions. Generally speaking, the practical politics of the Catholic Church has been, would you say, to accomplish something, to go along with the program. Uh, They've been, most of the popes, compromising. Sometimes, perhaps, you could probably make the argument somewhat uh, cowardly, filled with the, the prudence of the flesh, I'm thinking of the the relationship of the popes over the centuries with the French kings and mm. uh, how that gave gave rise to Gallicanism. And if we have this terrible confusion in the church today, the Pius X Society, the R&R group, Recognize and Resist, it's all because authority got messed up there in France. And France, of course, has paid the price and been punished terribly, but it would have been up to the church to to do something about it. Uh, you think, think of Pius VI and dilly-dallying with the condemnation of the French Revolution, masonry, 17th century, 18th century, uh, invading everywhere, and the church always sort of desiring just to go along to get along. Um, then in the it's true that uh, you pointed out, Your Excellency, I guess the piouses have either been great or problematic. Uh, just, you yes, know, you're talking enough, about the piouses really. there. It's interesting, Bishop Sanborn, last week when we were talking about some of this, he, he, he says it goes back to the slap of one of the legates of uh, Philip the Fair. Um, I, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, it was, it was to the papal legate. It was, was slapped, and he said that sort of disrespect... And of course, you know, oddly, there's such a paradox coming from France where you've had so, so many beautiful devotions and saints that have come from that yes. country daughter to also church. have right. yeah. Yeah, the French Revolution and all of the other corrupting influences out of there. Um, of I'm thinking with, with, with Pius and, and what you're talking about through the centuries, that compromise lead to go along to get along with that theme that you're talking about, not just an American issue, but we see it in the Rayemont, um, under under Leo, and then when we get the Pius, we get we get yeah. the betrayal of the Cristeros, and we get the um, uh, the suppression of Action Française. Mm-hmm. And I think it'd be really helpful, Your Excellency, if you could comment on on any or all of those events sure, uh, for, I, I our, for our for our listeners who are who aren't who aren't familiar with them. I would be very happy to. Um I think the question that faced the, the 20th century popes, and you have to include in that really the, the end of the reign of, of Leo XIII, was how Leo XIII, you have to say first of all, is the great pope of the kingship of Christ. That's not generally known. But he is the one who, who set up, which goes to show it could have been done, uh, he set up the worldwide consecration on the same day in June, at the last in the last year of the of the 19th century, the consecration of the world to the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and he's the one who laid out an Anum Sacrum, this magnificent 
again, it's, a, it's an encyclical that he wrote on the kingship of Christ and the sacred heart. He laid out all of the doctrine, and in a sense, Pius XI simply repeated all of that. But at the same time, Leo, he's the one, uh, the Rolimont, who says, well, you can prudently, my children, you may participate in politics. And I'm sure they all thought that was a grand idea back then and all the good that they could accomplish. But what a disaster it has been for the church and for society uh, ever since. Um, I think that uh, the 20th, 20th century, I think they, they saw, the popes did, they saw the practical playing out of the tiara, the, the kingship of Christ, the, the social reign of our Lord here and now, in political or diplomatic terms. Literally, they wanted a seat at the table, at the negotiating table, and they laughed at uh, Benedict XV when he claimed a place at Versailles. And... Um, you had the, all of the negotiations in which Pius XI and later on Pius XII would engage, and it was always a disaster for the church, and the church has always paid a bitter price for, as it were, putting a clothespin on her nose, rolling up her sleeves, and maybe you pick up your cassock and walk through the mud with the masons of this world. That's politics. It's an ugly affair. Uh, it's kind of summed up in a sense, you know, by Stalin. Uh, his, fa his, his, his famous question that came back finally to the ears of Pius XII, how many battalions does the Pope have? The Pope mm. answered correctly, Senor Stalin will see my battalions in another world. Because, of course, our Lord's power is not ink. Our Lord says in the Gospel tomorrow, it's not of this world, it's not from this world. But you'll see my power in the other world. Well, that's where we're meant to be as Catholics. We're meant to be somehow with keeping an idea on this other world and not to get ourselves compromised, not to get ourselves compromised with the politics of this world. I think two uh, seminal events are uh, to understand the disastrous role of the church in practical politics in the 20th century took place during the reign of the pontiff of the kingship of Christ, Pius XI. That is to say, the accords, as they were called, with uh, the, the Caius government in uh, Mexico, the Freemasonic anti-Christian government, and the condemnation of l'Action Francaise in France in the same era, in the 1920s. Uh, I, I talked to a priest once, an older priest from the old days in Mexico. We had a long drive together once. We went to Oaxaca or something. And I remember him telling me about what the practical effect was. The practical effect of the accords with between the Pope and the Mexican government, the Masonic Mexican government, was simply this. It actually carried out what the naturalists, what the Freemasons, what the modernists wanted in Mexico. What's that? They want the priest to stay in the church. They want the priest to stay in the sacristy, to, cons to, to do only to be involved with ritual or cultic items of worship, and that's the extent of it. That was, the, that was though, the practical effect, because here are the priests, and uh, to a, at least there were a few bishops who, who supported the lay movement of the Quisteros for their rights, for the rights of Christ the King, Viva Cristo Rey, then they found themselves to be betrayed. And in the name of obedience, the same thing as so many Catholics after Vatican II, in the name of obedience, 
They did. They obeyed. But then there was this lingering distrust. People felt they really couldn't trust the priest anymore. The role of the priest in Mexican society today, perhaps this is due in part, you can put the blame at the door of Pius XI and his practical politics, the role of the priest is to perform ceremonies. That's all. That's all. Mm. You pay him and he performs certain ceremonies. That's what the modernists wanted, and that's what they got. Uh, then look at France. Action Francaise. The, I remember the Abbe Maury of Nancy, uh, who was a, a man who was just a, a living expert on the history of the church, the, the conspiracies, Vatican II. Bishop Sambert and I went to see him shortly before his death. I remember him telling me that the practical effect of the condemnation of Action Francaise uh, was the um, total victory of the left in France, the modernists, the naturalists, the left wing, before World War II. After World War II, it was just a cleaning up operation. They had won. Why? Because the Pope had uh, driven out all the good guys. Uh, and then they had, everybody had this sort of a Gallican idea in the back of their head about the papacy and the role of papal authority. You put the two of them together and it spells the disaster that you see in France today. But it wasn't it wasn't all bad, Your Excellency. I think obviously this is very bleak, but I, I did want to mention always there's a bit of good news. We did have Gabriel Garcia Moreno bring a little bit of light to the shadows that, that you very ably pointed out. Can you comment a bit about him? Oh, certainly. It was a it was a uh, it was a brief moment of of light and of glory. That uh, particularly, you know, here we are on you know in 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 uh, in a, a world which looks very favorably upon monarchy to consider oh, the story of a republic and a republic that consecrated itself by means of its president to Jesus Christ our King. Uh, Father Mateo came across the picture, and then he he promoted that picture, the picture that Garcia Moreno had had used for the consecration of his own country and government to Christ the King, and spread that that picture and that devotion throughout the world. Uh, just before the uh, Spanish Civil War, you had the King of Spain publicly dedicating, consecrating his country to Christ the King. Oh, no, it, it, it certainly, it, there, there is certainly more than one example of that. Uh, but before we leave the subject, I think what we want to talk about is, is there a lesson to all of this for us? Yes, the lesson of what happened to the church in the 20th century, in effect of being where she didn't belong, is to tell us, be careful, don't be where you don't belong. Where do you belong? Where, what, what, what should we be into? Look at the, great, the first great pope of the kingship of Christ, Leo XIII. Most people remember him, if anyone does, as the pope of social doctrine, rerum novarum, the relationship of labor and of capital. If we could imbue ourselves with truly Catholic principles of the magisterium, we wouldn't be Republicans anymore. I don't know that we would necessarily be wanting to vote for Mitt. Uh, I asked my people in church, someone promoted this good idea of a 54-day rosary novena leading up to, uh, leading up to the election, uh, to pray not for a Mormon in the White House, but pray for a miracle. <laughs> We need to pray for a miracle. And uh, I, I'm a Catholic. I'm not going to settle for a Mormon. I want a miracle. Nor, indeed, do I want 
uh, Obama, this idea of uh, Moloch-like, uh, worshiping the state, the, the state, the supreme expression of absolute and unquestioned power into every to every realm of uh, our life. As um, Bishop Sanborn likes to say, the only difference between the liberals and the conservatives is that the liberals lead and the conservatives catch up with them in due time. <laughs> if you look at American history, I'm afraid that that's the case. What's the, the lesson to be learned from the church's practical politics in the 20th century? Don't get involved in that system. Don't dirty yourself with it. Uh, you've got, you're a Catholic. You know the Catholic truth. You've got more than enough to do to study and to teach others about the social teaching of the church, you've got more than enough to do on your knees in the way of praying, and you've got more than enough to do in the, the worship of Almighty God and the family, because it's all about the family when you get right down to it. I think that's, I think that's a very important, relevant commentary. Um, not not just for Americans heading to the polls here, or if you've already headed with early voting, um, and you're in a battleground state, Your Excellency. Uh, I know. Fact, we hear about it every day. One, 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 of, uh, one of the only uh, five or six states that actually matter in the election uh, with it's, our curious a, a, uh, electoral So college. we are told. So we are told. A temporal punishment due to sin, if anybody turns on a radio much as a television set, you will soon, soon regret it because you'll Absolutely. just be bombarded with all of this propaganda. It shows, it shows the, the, the modern media, the power and the pull of the modern media, and how important it is for us just to walk away, just to turn it off. You only have so much space in your brain. You only have so much time in a day. What should you be using your time for? What should you be filling up that space with? Christ the King, his gentle rule of love. That's what should occupy us. This idea of kind of like washed-out, Sunday-only Catholics. Remember, Bishop Williamson stressed, used to stress that in his apologetics um, talks at, at retreats, how, how that is the very, con the, very, the very victory of modernism or of naturalism. I'm a Catholic on Sunday. I go to the Latin Mass. But the rest of the week, I'm going to try my very best to be just as with it as you are. That's, that's, that's not our faith. That's not a worthy Christian life. The, the celebration of the Feast of Christ the King, if it's to do anything for us, is to call us back to these great truths. And I think that's a great place to pause for station identification, if you will, Your Excellency. Um, we're talking today about the Feast of Christ the King. This is Restoration Radio. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner. We're joined by His Excellency, um, Bishop Daniel Dolan. Um, it's, it's the bottom of the hour, so I'm going to give out the telephone number for uh, callers. Our call-in number is 949-272-9417. Again, 949-272-9417. You can also leave your questions on Twitter, at True Restoration. And someone had called in actually a little early, right before the show, um, a, a gentleman named Luke from Florida, uh, Your Excellency, and he'd asked, I guess in Florida, to register to vote, you have to take some kind of oath or maybe some kind of written statement to swear to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States, and not only not just the background, but the wording of that, I think Luke's question is, is it morally defensible for a Catholic to vote in Florida, at least in this particular case, uh, if you have to do that sort of thing? 
Well, I think that one of the uh, one of the great excesses of our age is to multiply sins and to declare more and more that this is a sin and this is a sin and this is a sin. I uh, I think it would be imprudent on the part of a priest and more so on the part of a bishop in a public forum to say if you took that oath, if you if you voted, you would be committing some kind of a sin. Just as you have the imprudence of those on the other side who say if you don't exercise your citizen rights and vote, then you're committing a sin. Now I think everybody probably needs to be quiet at this point, think a little bit, and uh, pray a lot. Uh, I think that a Catholic could do it without committing a sin, certainly as, as regards the general understanding of, uh, of these things. But uh, perhaps Luke uh, could make, and others could as well, make an interesting and a thoughtful argument on this very subject. These things should be studied. These things should be prayed over. These things uh, should be talked about. Because that's the, it's a, nice, a great question, as they say, because that's the beginning of the shaking of this go-along-to-get-along foundation of American Catholicism for so many centuries. We've lived this way. So, yeah, get out, get out the books. Let's think about this one. Let's study this. But be very careful. Be very prudent about the multiplication of mortal sins or the declaration of mortal sins. I think we've got more than enough to deal with as it is now. You know, Your Excellency, we uh, we sort of live in a post quad. I, I talked about this a bit in our show prep um, this week, but we live. All of us as Catholics now only ever knew Quas Primas as the distillation of the teaching. And you yeah. talked about the fact that, probably going back to Gregory the Sixteenth or even earlier, you have this back and forth with the modern world, especially post-French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Can, yeah. we, can we really go back to say, all right, well, you know, in the Middle Ages, everybody knew what was up. Everybody knew that, you know, the Pope was the temporal head of all of the princes, and and that this obviously was holding the, the vicarate in the place of our Lord, and everybody understood the kingship of Christ, not just as a doctrine of faith, but just as, well, of course, that's how the order of things are in the practical world. And, of course, you know, you'll have your people who are unbelievers. It wasn't as if the Middle Ages was, you know, uh, perfect. But uh, we we go from there. Is it true to paint that as sort of an era where even unbelievers understood that this was the construct that everyone lived under? Uh, to now where, you know, as a Novus Ordo Catholic, I, I grew up, it, I was 17 years old before Quas Primas came into my hand, and I ever even heard of this yeah, yeah. Uh, idea. I, I think that, that that kind of an idea, Stephen, is the thinking Catholic's equivalent of uh, what one would come across sometimes as a young priest in the traditional movement after the changes, that we have to go back to the glorious 50s, that if it could only be where, as we were in the 50s, everything was just perfect and fine, and Eisenhower was in there with the White right House, and the, the, the nuns were wearing their habits, and the priest was at the altar, and everything was great. Truth of the matter is that there never was a glorious perfect era to go back to. Oftentimes, reading the lives of the saints and church history, I'm struck. This happened in the 13th, the the best of centuries, the most glorious of centuries. If this happened back then, what on earth do you expect is going to happen now? The very best that we can do is to, again, we have to to, uh, seek, we have to marinate ourselves in the magisterium, in Catholic doctrine, and to the lives of the saints and the lives of the great 
Catholic heroes. I'm thinking again now of uh, Father Matteo, for example. So as and so as to to get get the right understanding of things, and then the more you read the the uh, the, the nitty gritty, the details, the footnotes of their lives, you see all of these conflicts and difficulties and personalities, uh, prickly people and personal faults, and then you see and you see it as well the great sweep of history. No, it was never easy. It was never obvious. You know, the French will say, and that's the truth. It's not an evident thing. It's not easy. It's always difficult, especially when you're living through an era and you only get to live through one, your own era. But um, Pius uh, XI, the kingship of Christ, when he wrote Quas Primas, he actually began by referring to the work done by Leo XIII. And Leo XIII, in turn, goes back to Pius IX. And the popes and others, Father Matteo too, love to use the term plebiscite, you know, like a popular vote. Like supposedly there was a plebiscite in, in uh, Austria for the reunion of Austria, the Union of Austria and Germany before World War II. Well, the popes often speak about that, and they speak of, in, in effect, a plebiscite. So, in effect, there was this great groundswell of devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus uh, during the time of Vatican I. That was one plebiscite. Another was uh, the, this groundswell starting in the late 19th century, petitioning the Vatican, petitioning the Holy Father for the, for the establishment of a feast day in honor of uh, Christ the King. And then there's the plebiscite that takes place in each family when Christ is enthroned as king. It comes down to that again. It is, that's really a very, very important idea. That was the life's work uh, of Father, Father Matteo. Interesting character. His father was an English Protestant. And he had to get, I'm sure, the dispensations in order to be ordained priest back then. And... Um, he was in failing health. He made a, uh, as a priest of the Sacred Hearts Congregation, the Picpus Fathers that Father Damien of Molokai belonged to. He made a pilgrimage to Prelimonial. Our Lord healed him, and our Lord gave him to understand that this would be his life's work, the social kingdom of, of Christ, and how it was going to come about, particularly by means of the family by family, the home enthronement ceremony. That, it, that, that takes you back to all your Catholic principles, the father of the family, because he's the head of the family. He, uh, along with the priest, goes to the little family shrine or altar, and he himself alone, he enthrones Christ. He is the authority, and now he gives his authority over to Jesus Christ, our king. And then the father and, and the spiritual father, the priest, kneel down together, and the two of them recite the consecration of the family to uh, the Sacred Heart. So Father Matteo says, we can indeed affirm that the enthronement is a plebiscite, the most authentic of all votes, that of the family whose vote constitutes before God the most authoritative vote in the nation. So we think of a lot of our, of our Catholics, have they enthroned the Sacred Heart? Do they know the social doctrine of the Church? No, because they're busy doing Yes, they're busy with all these other things, which are at very best, if they were just ephemera, just, you know, passing stuff, wouldn't be so bad. But it's poison. It's, it's, it's poison that doesn't pass but sticks around and gets built up in your brain, in your soul, 
in your family, in the way in which you live. The antidote to the poison is the doctrine of the kingship of Christ and the actual carrying of it out, whether in sacred liturgy, study, or in this case, in the, in the family circle. That's very important. Mm. And you come on to that um, uh, sort of very smoothly for one of the questions here, Your Excellency, from um, Twitter from Anshila Domini. Um, she says, uh, following enthronement, what steps can we take to establish our Lord as truly the king of our home? And I'm sure you have some thoughts on that, Your Excellency. Well, that's a very important point, because uh, although Father Matteo insists that that this devotion to the Sacred Heart, as we mentioned last time on the radio show, uh, is not is is not a new devotion. It's the summary of all devotion uh, packed up into in, into one into our Lord's divine and adorable heart. Nevertheless, we human beings have that tendency to take the eternal and to reify it, to make it to become a thing. And if it's a thing, then it's eventually a collectible on somebody's shelf gathering dust. And it would be very easy for the kingship of Christ to end up like that. Oh, we did that ceremony once. People will say, we enthroned our home. They mean to say, we enthroned the sacred heart. But sometimes I wonder, can they really just enthrone the home? That is to say, because we're going to do it, this is my home, and by golly, we're going to do it my way. And then if, if so, well, they just canceled the plebiscite. They, they just annulled the vote. There's been some voter fraud, I'm afraid. Uh, our Lord's got to rule as king. So uh, Angela is correct. She's on to something there. You need to, you need to take the practical terms living it. What does Father Matteo say? Well, one thing that occurs to me, he um, stresses the importance of uh, modesty and dress. Purity and women showing the example. He stresses the importance of the proper structuring of the family life, father, mother, the role of the father, the role of the mother, the role of the children. He stresses the importance of, and you, and you, can't, you can't exaggerate this, the importance of family prayer together and a daily life, also the observance of the feast days and the seasons together and the renewal of the family's devotion to the uh, sacred heart of Jesus. And then obviously one would go from there to the study of our Catholic faith, different levels, and the attempt to spread our Catholic faith. I was reading this morning about Father Matteo. At some point in some country or another, I think this is a true story, talking about some little old lady who would go in the village from house to house, uh, and when he was there, it was raining. and uh, she would talk to people about the enthronement, about Sacred Heart and our Lord being the king. And uh, he eventually connected with this old lady, and he says, uh, aren't you, you're wet, first of all. Yes, I'm wet, Father, it's raining. Aren't you hungry? No, I've got some bread waiting for me. But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about winning souls for the king of love. <laughs> How beautiful. Wow. That's a little bit like you know, the, the little old lady who, you know, typical, maybe like she's waiting, in the, as in the old days, in the vestibule for the church doors to be opened so she can go to her daily Mass. And she's the one, by her prayers and by her love, that's going to make, uh, that's going to make the difference and, and, and cause Christ to reign. Uh, as, as I did for the um, devotion to the Sacred Heart itself, I think also you could probably never really, especially in our world, you could never really... Um, overemphasize the importance of 
our own personal love of our Lord. That's the antidote against formalism. That's the antidote against losing ourselves in all of these uh, uh, loser, dead-end streets that mammon pro- proposes uh, to us. Diligence, thou shalt love. That was a great cry of uh, Father Matteo. Thou shalt love, thou shalt love. He was on fire with that. Uh, I was reading about him this week. He must, he must have cut a very curious figure, and he preached throughout the whole world. And he had to deal with his fair share of Vatican politics and suppression, and the Jesuits naturally were at his heels to a certain degree, and there was some competition there, and the uh, politics with the popes even. But uh, n- nothing slowed him down, and nothing stopped him. Wherever he went, he went to preach the love of Christ. Thou shalt love, diligence, thou shalt love. And if we love our Lord, this is going to be the living of it, this devotion to the kingship of the sacred heart of Jesus. That's why tomorrow's feast is a feast day to get excited about. It's just a wonderful, wonderful occasion. And that's why the enthronement is so important. That's why the, the living out of our, our Catholic faith should be enough for us. It's not something that we, that we put on on Sundays. It's not a duty that we perform to a certain degree. It's our life. It should be our life. If it is our life, then we are truly the soldiers and the apostles of the kingship of Christ. Mm. Well, I want to take up, and I, I want to have a show on this in the future, Your Excellency, about, you know, how do Catholics in the modern workplace interact. But you mentioned it. I just want to take go a little bit out on that promontory, and then we'll come back and talk about some other mm-hmm. things, but, you know, modesty and dress, family prayer, celebrating feast days, renewing the consecration, studying our faith, and then spreading our faith, uh, not just for the American Catholic, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Catholics in, in countries, frankly, far more secular than the United States, in which yeah. uh, Catholicism yeah. is reviled publicly. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. How, you know, how does one bring that to the workplace? Uh, how does... How does a Catholic interact in that way? There's a kind of a there's a kind of a glow that's been described. Uh, New Agers would say an aura that surrounds people who really do love Almighty God, and there's a peace and there's an attractiveness about that. Uh, peace, of course, comes as, as a result of order because order is established in that individual soul and in his relationship with Almighty God and as a member of the, of the one true church. And there's something attractive about all of those things because that person is in love with our Lord. And this, this, this love is, is a fire, and it's a fire that's actually fairly easy to spread to others. So it, it's got to start on some level not by sort of, you know, foaming at the mouth sermons at the 15-minute break, um, <laughs> in which you tell somebody else, you're, you know, you're committing all these mortal sins and you are certainly going to hell. My goodness. Whew. No, that's not going to get anywhere. You start, with, you start with love. You start with an example of virtue. You start with heroic, self-forgetting acts of charity. And you back it all up with prayer praying for the conversion of this person, praying for the resolution of this problem or this particular uh, situation. And a total for- well, to have a total forgetfulness of self would be difficult, but you at least you're working towards it. You want to be forgetful of yourself, and you want to think only about others and, and our Lord's reign. So it's something about character, and it's something about prayer, and it's something about a good example, 
And I think that it would be easy to caricature these things as some of our Catholics do today by the successive desire to give sermons. You know, basically at the sermon, the, the priest gives a sermon, that's good. Everybody doesn't give sermons all the time, however. That's not the living out of our faith. The sermon that you give is, is the silent St. Francis type of sermon. That's what's going to make the difference. And then after that, what do you do next? Well, you don't worry about it. Our Lord said, nolite premeditare, don't think about it beforehand. It will be given to you in that hour what you shall say. You worry about, well, it was today's gospel for the vigil of St. Simon and Jude. Manete in me, abide in me. Um, and, and you'll bear this fruit. It's going to come from me, from my heart, through your lips. And it's not going to come from you. But I, I think you can't get away, Father Faber would emphasize this, you can't get away from plain old um, kindness. That kindness it is that's the vehicle for making converts, for bringing about the reign of Christ. And so what, what a different world that is, uh, the, the spreading of the Catholic faith through kindness, through example, through prayer, um, and through prudent conversation from that of the, the Muslims, say, the Mohammedans. Uh, their their idea of spreading religion, uh, their their religion through the sword and through fire, and also through some uh, um, opportunities that they that they give to people to better themselves, appealing to to to, to the lower part of uh, of human nature. Uh, Catholicism has all of the answers. We simply have to be be living it more. But all of this comes as as a direct result of our devotion to the kingship of Christ. And I think this might be a good place, again, to do a station ident. We're close to the top of the hour. This is Restoration Radio. Um, today's topic, Christ the King, and its implications both uh, before, and after and into the, before and after the 20th century and into the 21st. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and I have, as our guest, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. We've been talking just now about how we can bring Christ into the workplace. I want to take take us back to uh, what you'd said at the beginning of the show, which really intrigued me, the idea of this feast as a feast of the Blessed Sacrament, a feast of the Sacred Heart, and a feast of Christ the King, all rolled up into one. And I'm sure you're talking about this both as a, a concept and as expressed in the liturgy and in the office. And I was hoping you might, you know, mostly people don't get, or not only don't get, but don't have a breviary so they don't always have access to some of the really great readings and reflections that are in there. Uh, and the, the Mass still, uh, you, you were quoting from the gradual Dominabitur Amare Usque. Um, can, you, can you speak to some of those uh, texts, some of those readings that really kind of bring home that triple tie that you were talking about? Yes, Stephen. So uh, the, the way the Divine Office begins for all of the ancient great feast days is, is, the, is the chanting of the 94th Psalm and what is known as the Invitatory at Matins, which used to be sung at midnight or certainly during the night before dawn. And the, the, the whole church is invited to come and to adore, and the way it's usually phrased is the king, uh, the regium confessorum, the king of confessors, the king of martyrs the King of Kings, the King of Love, and the Blessed Sacrament. So there's this note 
of the kingship of Christ that's struck by the church in the darkness of the night when the divine office starts again, this perpetual praise, a laus perennis, that the, that the spouse, the Catholic Church, gives to our Lord, who is her king and her God, uh, throughout the year. So any anytime you have a big feast, you have, you have that idea. Um, so Epiphany, Epiphany is sort of the, the ancient theological counterbalance to a more of a warm-hearted, nostalgic family type of Christmas. Uh, that, that's Christmas. But then when you get to Epiphany, it's a feast of sheer kingship. It's a feast of sheer adoration. So you have the kings of Tharsis coming and kneeling down and licking the dust and opening up their treasures and offering our Lord gold, frankincense, and myrrh because he is the king of kings and he must be, uh, he must be acknowledged. When the deacon chants the exultate on Holy Saturday as he is preparing the Paschal candle to be blessed. One of the phrases which he sings in that very beautiful hymn is Corvat Imperia, how our Lord makes the, the kingdoms, the empires, Corvat, to bow low, to bend before him because he is the king of kings and he rises from the dead by his own power. Uh, ascension, you have uh, the the uh, some sometimes they call it the gospel of of, of the kingship uh, all power in heaven and earth all power in heaven and earth is given to me going ye therefore teach ye all nations uh, ascension day we contemplate the Jesu rex admirabilis o Jesus the admirable king and we say in the words of the creed whenever we have the creed cuius regni non erit finis of whose kingdom there shall be no end. So, so really, it's um, the 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 cult or the worship of Christ the King is um, never absent from the Church's liturgy, from the Divine Office, or from the Mass. Practical lesson to learn from that: it should never be absent from our approach to these sacred mysteries. When we start taking it all for granted, when we, God forgive us, as reify or make a thing out of out of these sacred realities and the divine person, our Lord and our King, uh, present on our altar sacramentally, then we run into trouble. And that, the, that's, that's the danger of human nature. That's why we need the, the constant uh, counterbalance of uh, a prayer, study, meditation, to, uh, to put all of, these, all of these great truths together. Well, speaking of counterbalances, um, Vatican II was a great counterbalance to all of this teaching that you're speaking of. It sure uh, was. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we got into this a little bit with uh, with Bishop Dolan, uh, with Bishop Sanborn last week. Uh, we mm-hmm. talked about, in particular, Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes and, and how they related to this. Can you speak a little bit to how the teaching on Christ the King has changed and the approach has changed in, and also the implications for Catholic states following Vatican II and what that meant. Sure. Let me quote Archbishop Lefebvre again. I remember one of his conferences to us seminarians at Econ speaking about that particular point, about uh, the apostolic nuncio to 
Switzerland telling the Swiss government, well, we no longer, you know, we no, no longer go along with this idea of, uh, of an established religion, and that is to say in certain cantons, in the Catholic cantons of Switzerland. And that was the reason for, one of the reasons, of course, for Paul VI Montini giving the cold shoulder to <clears throat> Franco at the end of his uh, Catholic reign in Spain. The idea was that all nations were to be on the same footing, the, the, the goal, the ideal, the free church and a free state, and you have your rights and I have mine, and I suppose may the best man win. Archbishop Lefebvre often referred to the uh, hymn, the Vesper hymn, which is a very beautiful hymn, Te Seculorum Principem, both in the, in the text and in the Gregorian chant, how the sixth verse was left out in the Novus Ordo text. The sixth verse of the hymn goes. It's just not there anymore. Uh, this would be a translation. <clears throat> May realms and they that rule them vie with solemn rites to raise thee high. May laws and arts thy servants be, all life be sanctified in thee. Uh, but the literal, the literal uh, Latin is te nationem presides, the, the, the rulers, the presides, the presidents of, of the nations, may they bring the public honor. May the magistrates, the judges, the, uh, the, the legislators, as well as the arts, all express this truth. Well, they have it in a nutshell. They cut that out, the sixth verse. Archbishop Lefebvre was certainly right to point that out and to object to it. That's that's the religion. That is the new religion of the new church. It is, as he entitled one of his books, the Archbishop did, they have dethroned him. He's no longer the king. He's and you replace the Christ the King, uh, or say a magnificent uh, pontifical mass, or, a, or a, uh, indeed a papal mass at St. Peter's. You replace that view with uh, uh, Ratzinger or Kuchtiwa standing on the same level as everybody else at Assisi, one religious leader seeking for peace amongst others. That's the reason we don't have peace today. That's the reason that the world has become such a hellish place, because you don't even have the light of the Catholic Church anymore to, to, shine, uh, to shine on the truth. We're, we're uh, immersed in this, the world of modern politics, and things are getting, as it were, worser and worser, because we, we we've, we've forgotten the principles, our Catholic principles. And it's not helped when it seems as though those who are possessing the visible instruments of power in the Church are promoting syncretism and, and uh, a go-along to get along. Because I think part of it is that the, the, the sort of evil here is ecumenism and and the idea of the reign of Christ are, are directly contralinked, is that, you know, yeah. as you push ecumenism, you necessarily also have to crush the idea of the reign of Christ, because those, those can't exist in the same space. And that would explain why we, the Catholics who are left, have to be crushed continuously. <laughs> and it has not yes. ended, and it won't end, but it's a glorious thing to suffer that crushing, because we are for Christ the King. We, are, we have to be the Cristeros of our time, Stephen. Uh, everybody has to cry out "Viva Cristo Rey," and that's the that's the that's the beauty of the lay apostolate, as I see it. That that's the the finest hour of Mexico's history, and that should light the way for what Pius XI and the XV referred to as Catholic action. And again, I think that's hard. And I we one of the uh, one of the 
callers, uh, sorry, one of the listeners mentioned that he was listening from Brazil, and I don't know what the atmosphere is like in Brazil, but I mean, as Americans, very much going back to what you said in the earlier show, the number one virtue, the number one to- the number one virtue among Americans is tolerance, the idea to go along. Um, and part of that is we've never been a Catholic country. Because, again, getting away from what other people may have grown up with. I'm always struck. I remember being in Spain this summer, and just the the statues are everywhere. It's just... Yeah, uh, yeah. It, so even if you're not a practicing Catholic, there's still an acknowledgement of this Catholic history and, sure. and culture there. It's, 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 it's a culture. It's in, it's in daily life. Of course, we still have it in America. Uh, that's perhaps the good news. I mean, if you open your eyes, you see all of these... Catholic Catholic names and feast days and Christmas and Easter and even Halloween. That that takes you right back to the church's liturgical year. Uh, maybe somebody's twisted it and the devil's tried to, to get some use out of it, but scratch it and you will find Catholicism there, even in America. Of course, about America, I think you have to say... I was talking to a Jewish doctor the other day who likes to read church history, which is interesting. And he was telling hmm. me uh, one of his profound impressions is how persecuted the Catholic Church was in the United States. And, of course, that's true, because that's how it was in England and in Ireland, how persecuted the church was. Uh, as a result of that, they formed this kind of this idea, and then uh, a man like Archbishop Ireland or Cardinal Gibbons systematized it and, and made it to be just a, an unspoken ruling policy that this is how it was going to be. We were glorious Americans, and sure, we had our religion, but that was over here in the corner, and uh, we were going to be Americans first and foremost, and we had this contribution, too, to make to American society, and the M word, don't anybody dare bring it up. Mm. Your Excellency, I, I wanted to read from from the encyclical uh, this this idea. And again, we've we've been ha- we've been hammering home. I think the concept today. I don't think anyone's going to question that we have talked about the idea of Christ the King, not just as a, a metaphysical intellectual concept, but something mm-hmm. that's very practical. It doesn't require a big political action committee or the two billion dollars in donations that have been poured into these respective campaigns for the American presidency. Mm-hmm. It just requires practical everyday things that don't cost any money. Right. And uh, it, so this is from paragraph 17 of Quas Primus. It would be a grave error, on the other hand, to say that Christ has no authority whatever in civil affairs, since by virtue of the absolute empire over all creatures committed to him by the Father, all things are in his power. Nevertheless, during his life on earth, he refrained from the exercise of such authority, and although he himself disdained to possess or to care for earthly goods, he did not, nor does he today, interfere with those who possess them. And this, I think, goes back to a theme I've heard in your sermons before, the idea that this feast also feeds into the idea that there is a Catholic way to do everything, in in a certain sense, that there is a Catholic relationship to everything we do. And again, getting away from the Sunday Catholicism that you've also talked about here, this feast brings brings that home. It allows us to reflect on, you know, our everyday actions. What, what significance does that have? I, I was just thinking the other day that, I think I had gotten a milkshake from from Chick Fil A, and how suddenly buying a milkshake was yeah. a political statement. You know, someone yes, someone was going to see, right. yeah. see me with with this cup, and and then that would in itself telegraph 
you know, what my feel, you know, if they, they would make this, maybe they'd make some assumptions and say, oh, well, you know, maybe he's against gay marriage and, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought it was really interesting to have this sort of visible uh, note to sort of telegraph to people, yes, maybe I am that way. How do you feel about that? <laughs> well, you know, that that, that, that uh, speaks to what you mentioned earlier, Stephen, about uh, the good news uh, in Garcia Moreno. There, 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 there's good, sure there's good news everywhere. Uh, our Lord is the king, and he is claiming his, his kingship. And sometimes, uh, although they don't know exactly what they're saying, sometimes those who are outside the church are heading a little bit in the right direction. You see it in, 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 in social life. You see it in, in this case, economics or business. You see it, obviously, in politics, and that's what, that's what draws Catholics in to the American political uh, process. It's this idea of, indeed, the kingship of Christ. Uh, our job is to understand well and to conform our thinking to what the Catholic Church has to say about these great themes. Um, Leo XIII, Rerum Novarum, the, uh, the, uh, the obligation of labor, the obligation of capital, the natural law. These are things which are antithetical to a lot of Paul Ryan's background and his political thought, for example. But we Catholics need to study this stuff. The Church has something to say. When, when we say the Church doesn't, isn't involved in politics, I mean that kind of a sit-at-the-table, dirty politics that compromise you and subsume you into a rotten system. No, the Church should have learned a lesson in the, in the 20th century about that stuff. It never works out. It just never does. Even the careful hammering out of concordats with these, with these governments. The Church has always played for a chump, and the bad guys always win. What we need to do is to educate our people in the great Catholic principles. We have something to say about economics. It was not the Republican Party. We, the Catholic Church, we have something to say about that. I remember um, discussing that once with an employer who was in the parish uh, about his duty to pay a living wage to men in his company who had a family and indeed a large, you might say, quote-unquote, Catholic family. And he just looked at me. And he said, well, I couldn't do that. That would be against the law. Okay, exactly. Now we're on the kingship of Christ. Let's talk about that. Let's think about that. What, what needs to change here? <laughs> it's not yep. simply that I'm going to be against abortion, and so therefore I'm going to, or I'm going to be against Obama, and I'm going to vote for the Republican platform. No. The, uh, these things touch. Uh, these things, the party platforms and uh, political programs, obviously they touch. Uh, sacred truths, or else they promote profane error, one or the other. We have to immerse ourselves in Catholic doctrine, and we have to live it, and then we have to speak about it to others. So you see, instead of allowing ourselves to be one more cog in the wheel to elect uh, the, say, like, the, uh, the Republican, the next Republicans. Republicans are always better than Democrats. Instead of going to that whole system, we say, no, wait a minute, nuh I don't think so, not this time around. I'm going to spend my time studying the Church's doctrine. I'm going to try to put this Church's doctrine into effect in my own life, and I'll try to, I'll try to extend that to others, too. That's how I'm going to use my time and my energy. Far better spent, in, in my opinion. Mm, absolutely. Well, we're we're and there's still a lot we could talk about, but we've got about um, we've got 
10, 20 minutes left in the show. For those of you who are thinking about calling in, this will probably your last five or 10 minute window to do so. The telephone number is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. And you can also leave questions on Twitter um, with the handle at True Restoration. Um, I have to do some shameful plugging at this point, uh, both for His Excellency and myself. Um, if you've been, some of you may not be acquainted with Bishop Dolan or, or not know about his work, but you can go to sgg.org um, where you can watch masses live streamed. It's the only place I know of currently in the world that live streams traditional masses every day. Uh, and then if you want to hear their Sunday sermons, they're also there and they're archived, and you can just click on that. Uh, and sometimes you'll also get to see photos. Um, His Excellency is very much into practicing what he preaches as far as celebrating feast days, and I'm always a bit jealous uh, not living nearby and getting to see uh, processions or coronations or you know, uh, kids getting dressed up in cool costumes. Um, I don't get to, don't get to see any of that. You, you'll have, you'll have a, you'll have a, some cool costumes this next week, I, I imagine, Your Excellency. Oh, as a matter of fact, tomorrow the, uh, our little saints will be leading us into church for Christ the King. And so we, we generally chant the beginning of the Litany of the Saints, and all the little children dressed as their chosen saint, each one uh, process into church, and they take the first pews, and then comes uh, the celebrant, and then, the, and then the, ma- the great Mass of Christ the King commences. And then after Mass, then the children um, in the the social hall then present their little costumes and if they're able to they they, they tell us a little bit something about their saint and we and I, we try to get the other children to guess who the saint is because we really want to encourage uh the knowledge of the saints this started because of a of a certain concern obviously a prudent concern without you know going to extremes but the american observance of halloween especially in more recent years the idea is to give the children a party, but let them, this is the, the liturgical movement, let me say at its very best, let them uh, enjoy the feast and participate in it and get a party out of it, get some candy, some loot, why not, without anything that's dangerous or anything that's maybe compromising to the Catholic faith and something that all parents would feel uh, quite comfortable with. And this, that's, this is the kingship of Christ. In other words, that our Lord has something to say to the kiddies. <laughs> our Lord has something to say to the children. And we all have to be as children for the sake of entering into the kingdom. We live our Catholic faith. It's not just, you know, let me set my watch and I'll, you know, give the priest so long for the Mass and so long for the sermon and I'm out of here. Then my real day starts. Uh, I've got my ticket punched and I haven't committed a mortal sin. That's That can't be a Catholic's approach anymore. The Catholic approach has to be uh, the kingship of Christ. Our Lord is king over every aspect of my life, my family, my children, my year. And I want to live my year in in union with my with my king. Mm, absolutely. Um, and we don't have a another show to announce. Uh, we're coming up on the end of not only the end of the liturgical year, but also the end of our, our broadcast year, and we'll be doing some advanced planning over the next couple of weeks about uh, what's coming up. We will be finishing our show on we have a two part show on Spain that you guys that you listeners may have uh, listened to, where we talked about what led up to the Spanish Civil War, and we're going to conclude that series, what happened during and after the Spanish Civil War. We're going to try to do that in the next couple of weeks, and I'll have a, a date for you up at truerestoration.blogspot.com 
course, Restoration Radio is brought to you by True Restoration and True Restoration Press. We always welcome donations. You can do that by going to paypal.com and sending any donation of any kind to truerestoration at gmail.com and you enable us to have great guests like His Excellency and and do the shows that I think people want to hear about. We live in the age of media abundance where you can you can read any newspaper, you can listen to any sort of content. And I think the strong response, not just to your last show, Your Excellency, but I'm sure we'll we'll see the same trend in the downloads of the podcast of this show. That Catholics, you know, want this, want to talk about these sorts of issues, mostly because, you know, it's a, it's a, it's sort of lonely out there. And again, perhaps <laughs> kind of to, to bring us back to the theme of Christ the King, um, it again reminds us of the natural order of things that that we're we're not alone metaphysically or actually. And um, I guess I, I'll leave you. Your Excellency, to, to give us uh, some concluding thoughts about not just the feast, what we should be preparing for tomorrow, whether we get to go to a Mass or not, um, for those who are blessed to be near a, a traditional Mass uh, tomorrow, uh, leave us with some thoughts to meditate upon, not just uh, leading up to, to, to the Mass tomorrow, but during the Mass tomorrow and, and during the rest of the Sunday. One of the things which I... This is not necessarily a concluding thought, but it's something which I wanted to put in for people to think about a little bit, Um, something which I've learned over the years, is the um, role of private revelation in the public uh, teaching of the Church, in effect in the Church's magisterium. Uh, You have the revelation of our Lord, the Sacred Heart, to St. Margaret Mary, and how usually if you research enough, for any kind of a feast day, for any kind of a devotion that's been approved by the church, there's going to be some sort of a private revelation that's connected with it. Uh, for example, when um, Leo the Thirteenth consecrated with all the bishops, all the priests, the world to the Sacred Heart of Jesus in um, 1899, June of 1899, he was moved to do so by private revelation to one good shepherd nun who was a German who ended up in a good shepherd convent in Oporto in Portugal. And um, this woman, Mother Mary of the Divine Heart, had received a number of uh, very beautiful visions and very pressing invitations from uh, the Sacred Heart that uh, indeed the world should be consecrated. And the Pope read this. He took it seriously. He prayed over it, just as, say, Pius IX did about La Salette, for example, in the secret of La Salette. Um, then there were some theological questions. Could he, as Pope, consecrate non-Christians, pagans? Uh, would he have the power to be, would that be theologically accurate? And that was studied. St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, had the solution that, yes, indeed, he could. And would it be prudent to do so? That's another question. And then that was also, also talked about. And then, then finally resolved. And then as, as a result of this, why then he went ahead and um, set up uh, the consecration of the whole world to the Sacred Heart which, by the way, shows that it can be done had uh, some of the great popes of the 20th century, uh, Pius XI, or even Pius XII, although it was a little late by then, had they really wished to go along with Our Lady's request, the Queen's request at Fatima, they could have done that consecration of Russia 
to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Uh, but already then the atmosphere was changed and it was decided, well, that wouldn't be prudent to get into that stuff, that's for sure. And it was just, it was just dropped. But it's a wonderful thing to see this tender childlike devotion on the part of a great, great pope like Leo XIII or uh, uh, Pius the the Eleventh, Pius the Twelfth, to these to these individual revelations. I think the individual revelations. Think of just Sister Teresa Menendez, for example, gives a lot to our spiritual life, our spiritual reading. I think of Mary of Agreda. That's another example how we can, by our own spiritual reading, uh, nourish the um, nourish the the, the 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 flame of devotion within. But if there's anything that we all need. And we should really dedicate our time to this, is not following secular politics, but to follow the voice of the popes. We should probably try to get a hold of Anum Sacrum and read what Leo the Thirteenth had to say about the kingship of Christ. Quas primas, or the second encyclical that the Holy Father, Pius XI, wrote on the need of uh, reparation, reparation, because he wrote two Christ the King Sacred Heart encyclicals, and the second was specifically to call for reparation to the Sacred Heart of our Lord. There's a whole world of spirituality that that touches all of that. Um, the, the what was nice the name of that thing, encyclical, Your Excellency? On the, the, what was the name of that encyclical by Pius XI? Was it Miserantissimus Redemptor? Yes. Miserantissimus Redemptor is encyclical about 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 uh, reparation, and the first one was about the kingship of Christ Himself. Father Raoul Plus, this wonderful Jesuit spiritual writer, wrote a whole book on that subject. And indeed, that's so much a part of our our Sacred Heart observance, the communion of reparation every first Friday, and the idea of making reparation by a holy hour, say, to the Sacred Heart. Father Matteo stressing the importance of a holy hour in the home, the night adoration in the home of uh, the Sacred Heart of our Lord and our King. Those are all ways in which um, we can, if we have the Mass tomorrow, if we don't have the Mass tomorrow, I mean a good Mass, a holy Mass, a Mass that's truly what they call the Oblatio Munda, that's not, that's not uh, touched in any way by any compromise with the false Antichrist Church. Uh, we have the perfect means and the perfect expression, but the uh, the, the the teaching of the church uh, the, the, by means of the mystical body of Christ, you are still united. You are with me tomorrow at the altar. You may not even be able to tune in to to the broadcast and, and to see the, the the webcast of the mass. Uh, but re- regardless of where you are or what you are doing, you're a Catholic. You're united with every true holy Catholic mass throughout the world, and guess what? Your king is Christ. He is your king. And you can do something to promote or to hinder his program. Whatever you do, don't bury it under a lot of blather that just doesn't make any difference in the big picture. Don't uh, allow your precious Catholic doctrine. It's yours. It's, you, professed, you professed that when you were baptized. Don't allow that to be uh, co-opted by the monsters of the media and the establishment who just want to eat you up. They're the Moloch. They want the live sacrifices. Don't go along with that. You have a dignity. You're a Catholic. You're, you're You're a citizen of Christ the King. He is your king. He is your ruler, and your your first allegiance has to go to him. By that very fact, you receive a tremendous amount, 
And you have, at the same time, a tremendous responsibility of homage that you have to pay towards our king. I've linked to both the Leo the Thirteenth and Pius XI encyclicals that His Excellency referred to on our Twitter page. So those of you who might not have had a pen handy when His Excellency was talking about it, um, I have them posted on our Twitter at True Restoration on Twitter.com. Um, thank you so much, Your Excellency. Our, our guest today was was Bishop Daniel Dolan. Um, who spoke to us not only about the actual Feast of Christ the King, but expanded it into larger areas, talking about how this plays out with the Blessed Sacrament, with the Sacred Heart, um, a tie to Father Mateo. If you didn't have a chance to listen to His Excellency's last appearance uh, with us, was on the Sacred Heart, I'll post a link to that as well uh, on our Twitter page. Um, I think it's a great, I think you referred to it, Your Excellency, as sort of a companion piece. It sort of follows on very nicely um, Absolutely, this, this show follows on very nicely from this. Yes, to understand one, we really need to understand the other. And His Excellency is very busy, but we will try to rope him in for some other shows uh, in the new liturgical year. But I have to be sensitive to the fact it's going to be a getting into a very busy time of year liturgically and pastorally for you, Your Excellency. So oh, hopefully we'll have sure, him on again uh, soon, but we don't we don't know when. And um, also feel free, um, at, I, I mentioned sgg.org, um, a great way to show appreciation for His Excellency's time today is to go there, and um, there's also a donate button there on that page, and send no, something as a thing. We are Catholics after all. <laughs> we do have to pass the collection plate for this via valid radio broadcast. Indeed, or else other than illicit. Yes, not yes I wanted to, for this to be illicit, illicit uh, <laughs> broadcast, so we have to pass the plate a little bit. But if you want to show some appreciation for His Excellency's time today, please feel free to go on the site, make a donation for whatever amount. Um, the, the donations there go to a, a number of things, be it to support the, the priests of Mexico or to work, work on the church or the school, and you can specify what you'd like. Or if you just want to buy uh, His Excellency a latte, I suppose you could do that as well. <laughs> Thank you for sure. <laughs> thank you for thank again. Thank you for your time, Your Excellency. Thank you, um, listeners, for listening to Restoration Radio. We will uh, leave you with the long version, the entire Kyrie um, of the Coronation Mass to close out the show. And we hope that you join us again next time on Restoration Radio. Excellent. God bless you, Stephen. Thank you very much. Thank you, Viva Your Cristo Rey. You. Indeed, Viva Cristo Rey.
This program was brought to you free of charge by the generous sponsorship of an anonymous donor in honour of Saints Thomas Aquinas and Teresa of Avila. Please keep this donor in your prayers.